Shabbat Shalom. I wasn't here last week. Traveled to Israel with a group of 20 American and Canadian congregational rabbis. It was a diverse group, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox, men and women from many different parts of North America. The Israel Ministry of Foreign Affairs organized and partially subsidized the mission. The growing polarization between Israel and world Jewry is a matter of increasing concern for Israel, and as you know, for me, keeps me up at night. We were officially called a unity mission. I believe in Jewish unity. I believe in dialogue, especially with those whose opinions are different than mine. I believe that through engagement and interaction, we have a chance of bringing people around to our own views. I even wrote a book with an ultra-Orthodox rabbi and scholar who was filled with intense and unresolved disagreement about fundamental issues. But people still write to me 15 years later and tell me that they find that what we wrote was helpful to them in their own thinking and their own efforts at dialogue. I do not consider fellow Jews with whom I have even deep disagreements enemies. At most, I view them as opponents who can be prevailed upon, either through persuasion, and if not, then through persuading others, the majority of Jews, to prevail upon them. That was always the most common way that arguments were won in Judaism, through reason, persuasion, and majority rule. In that spirit, I joined the mission. I wanted to convey the message of unity, but not uniformity. I wanted to express my unconditional, but not uncritical, love for Israel. I wanted to emphasize the grave risks to the future of our people because of three monumental and unresolved challenges. First, the open wound of the unresolved conflict with the Palestinians that is sapping the moral energy of the Jewish people. Judaism is not designed for coercion. We are a religion of coexistence and peace. Sooner or later, the moral weight of not solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will split apart the Jewish people and Israeli society, even if, as I believe, it is the Palestinians more than the Israelis who are unwilling or unable to agree on a peaceful, permanent resolution to the conflict. Second, I joined the Unity Mission because I wanted to warn of the outrageous and arrogant influence of the ultra-Orthodox parties that poisons the relationship between Israel and world Jewry. As long as the Haredi community monopolizes religious life in Israel, 
A normal relationship with the world's Jews is impossible because, unlike Israelis, the Jews of the world, 90% of whom are not Orthodox, identify with the Jewish people primarily through religion and synagogues. But the ultra-Orthodox community sees everyone not Orthodox as not only mistaken, but illegitimate. They are filled with arrogance, scorn, and intolerance. They are, of course, entitled to their views. But to play such a dominant role in shaping Israel's relationship with world Jewry is catastrophic for Israel and for us. Third, I joined the mission because I wanted to convey to Israelis that American Jews are in an existential struggle to preserve Jewish continuity, and we need Israel's help. We are not growing. We are shrinking, especially the liberal Jewish community. Everyone knows this. All rationalizations, explanations, and evasion notwithstanding. And as night follows day, the more distanced American Jews are from Judaism, the more distanced they are from Israel. By and large, American Jews identify with Israel if they identify with Judaism. It is a sentiment that supersedes all political differences with any particular Israeli government. If American Jews do not have a strong Jewish identity, they tend not to have strong connections with the Jewish state. Strong criticism of Israel is preferable by far to apathetic indifference. Unlike the Palestinian and ultra-Orthodox challenges that are within Israel's purview to affect a solution, the dilution of Jewish identity in America is not primarily within Israel's capacity to resolve, although there are many ways that Israel can be helpful to us. So I went to Israel to deliver these three messages. We conducted all-day meetings with members of Knesset, academics, Supreme Court justices, civil servants of the foreign ministry, and Israeli rabbis. We also met the prime minister. It was not a given. The day of our scheduled meeting, last Wednesday, a missile from Gaza hit a home in Beersheba. The prime minister immediately entered into a day of emergency security briefings. He helicoptered down to Beersheba. He postponed our meeting three times. None of us would have thought twice had he canceled on us. We expected it. Of course, security comes first. It was a reminder to me 
of how much pressure is on the leaders of any country, let alone Israel, along with all of the daily crises, the leader of Israel is preoccupied with existential challenges daily, unknown and inconceivable to most leaders in the West. Prime Minister Netanyahu did eventually meet with us. I interpreted this as indicative of his concern about the increased tensions with world Jewry. We spent 45 minutes in frank discussion, after which he immediately began an additional six-hour security briefing that didn't end until 2 o'clock in the morning. It was an off-the-record meeting, so, ah, uh, that might be him calling now, <laughs> just to make sure, because we insisted not to detail what we actually discussed, so I won't. But sitting there in the cabinet room, waiting for the prime minister to arrive, I noticed on the wall, a framed biblical passage. It was right behind the prime minister's seat. So since we were waiting, I got up to take a closer look. It was a passage from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 4. As I read it, I felt my eyes welling up and I recognize that feeling that I get whenever Jewish history comes alive for me. When the past and the future flow into my body and touch my soul and I sense the timelessness of Jewish life and my own small, limited, finite role. 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 is not particularly exciting. It's a simple, straightforward recitation of names. Azariah ben Sadok, the priest, Eli Choref and Achiah, scribes, Yehoshaphat, recorder, Benayahu, chief of staff of the military, Tzadok and Evyatar, the priests, Azariah, in charge of the officers, Zavud, the king's advisor, Achishar, chief of staff of the palace, Adoniram, head of the tax system. But these were not any old names. These were the ministers of King's, King Solomon's cabinet. They were his advisors. They were members of his government, his cabinet. That's why this passage was in the cabinet room of the government of the state of Israel. As in the days of King Solomon, 3,000 years later, almost to the year, there is a Jewish state 
It has a leader, the prime minister. It has a cabinet. It has a chief of staff of the military. It has advisors. It has recorders. It has a tax system. It is a miracle of unparalleled proportions. We should have disappeared from the pages of history long ago. An eternal people that for some unfathomable reason God has kept alive. They left us for dead a thousand times. Tortured on the crosses of the Inquisition. Bleeding on the steps of the pale. Incinerated in the furnaces of Europe. Despised and discriminated against in the lands of the Crescent. Our people has raised Zion from desolation and made it live again. Beersheba, where the missile hit last week, is mentioned in this week's Parsha. Abraham lived in Beersheba. Vayashov Avraham el Nearav Vayakumu Vayelchu Yachdav el Be'er Shava. Vayeshev Avraham Biv'er Shava. And Abraham returned to Beersheva. And he dwelt in Beersheva. Sitting there in the cabinet room, waiting for the leader of the cabinet of the reconstituted Jewish state who had just returned from an emergency flight to Beersheba. I felt once again the mysterious, ineluctable flow of time and the small blessings bestowed upon me. I am grateful to God for making me a Jew, for allowing me to be part of this people. I am grateful to have lived to see the restoration of the Jewish state, a democracy with laws, judges, an army, and a thriving, noisy, unruly, impatient, endlessly frustrating but magnificent society. I feel blessed to spend a few days in the sun linking the generations in our eternal quest for meaning. King Solomon was the wisest of the Israelite kings. The Bible tells us that people came from all over the world to receive Solomon's wisdom. The reign of the king was long, 40 years. The days of Solomon were the most peaceful and prosperous our people has ever known. Solomon built the temple. He brought well-being to Israel. The last verse of chapter 4 of 1 Kings hanging on the wall in the cabinet room 
reads, Yehuda ve'Yisrael rabim kachol asher al hayam larov ochlim ve'shotim usmechim. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sands on the seashore. They were joyous, happy, and content. In a masterful commentary, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook explains that when the Bible uses the term kachol asher al svatayam, the Israelites were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. We should understand that as a challenge to the Jewish people. A grain of sand is just one tiny particle on the seashore. It assumes its significance only when combined with all of the other grains of sand to fulfill their collective mission. And so, Rabbi Cook teaches, every Jew, is like a grain of sand. We assume our full potential only when we combine with all of the other Jews of the world, fulfilling our collective destiny. May this be so. May we join together as a people to bring about better days. Yehuda Yisrael larov ochlim veshotim usmechim. May the people of Israel live to see days of joy, contentment, and happiness, days of peace. Peace for our people and peace for all people.